Sad news. That tree that we talked about with Layla Tassi last week is coming down. We were misled. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Jane Cahoon and the aforementioned Layla Tassi. Layla, after you wrote that and the owner of the yard said, oh, no, I'm going to do lots of studies. Turns out he wasn't telling you the truth. I know. I know. Yeah, the neighbor sure. next the neighbor just to the east who has been just so sad and heartbroken about this let me know yesterday that the crews have assembled. They started taking down dozens of other trees in the property. And then this morning they have uh, fired up their chainsaws and circled around the beautiful 350 year old oak. So yeah, sad. I mean, that is there's there's karma in taking out a 350 year old life form. No. I think you'll regret it. Not not. Not to mention he'll be despised by his neighbors for all time. I don't know what people are thinking sometimes. I know. Let's begin. Will there be Memorial Day parades this year? What about crowded county fairs? And can the Indians sell out their ballpark if they want to? How did Mike DeWine change the rules for Ohio Mass Gatherings Monday? And why is it always so confusing when he makes these (laughs) announcements? It takes us hours to figure out what the hell he said. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> that's what I was going to start with. I mean, that briefing on Monday ranks right up there with the most confusing of all <laughs> briefings. It was so vague that we we not only had to use our question to try to get clarity, we had to like get a translation afterward. But in any event, also at the risk of making myself sound stupid, I read this new order several times and I was still confused. But it wasn't it, you, Jane. It, it was wasn't him. me. Okay, thank you. That's reassuring. So the theme that DeWine stressed at this briefing was that he was going to simplify and consolidate orders into one order, and let's just use common sense. So did that mean he's going to like lift the mask mandate? No, no. He said that was still in effect. But but what's not in effect is this ban on mass gatherings outdoors. So to get to your question, like parades, county fairs, festivals. And baseball games, presumably. So that means that Progressive Field is no longer subject to this 30% capacity rule. However, let me me, me stop you right there, though, because (laughs) yesterday was the first time fans were allowed there in a year. And he had set the rules a month ago for how that would work. But while they were still taking their seats before (laughs) the first pitch, he changed the rules in this very confusing fashion, which you're going to try to explain. I was I was going to get to that, but right, you are right. The timing was impeccable, okay? So the big however here is that they still have to seat fans in small groups of like no more than 10 and keep each group spaced apart from each other. So what does that mean in terms of the number of fans who can attend the games, the number I of tickets they can sell? <laughs> I have no earthly idea, but it's going to be up to the team to, to figure right. that out. It's up and to the I team. I am not willing to try to do the math here myself or the, you know, figure out the square footage or the seats or anything like that. Yeah, as you said, imp- impeccable timing here. And they, the administration wouldn't tell us whether they had already talked to the Indians about it, you know, before they sprung it, like right, right before the game. Oh, they no merely way. said that they communicate regularly with the team there's no way they're making this up as they go (laughs) look so the indians thing is hilarious because the indians had spent the past month planning for the beginning of the season under certain rules and on opening day they changed the rules which is just cockeyed but 
The other parts of this are equally to me confusing. So <laughs> you, can, <laughs> right. you can have a Memorial Day parade, but you've got to sit in your bubble and wear a mask. No one is going to do that. Yeah. I mean, have yeah. you ever been to a parade? No one <laughs> is going to do that. They're throwing candy to the kids and people are all around. I mean, that's ridiculous. Then he didn't mention fireworks. Think about fireworks. Think about this. You, you, we've all been there. You get into the field, right? You put your blanket out, you sit down, and then all the latecomers come in and they crowd the hell out of everybody because everybody wants to see the fireworks. Do you really think we're going to have a field of people watching fireworks where they're in their groups of 10 with six foot perimeters to, to the next people? It's Right. And all wearing masks, it, you know, right. if they get any closer. So, yeah, that those are supposed to be the, the rules. They're they're supposed to require people to wear masks when they can't stay distant from one another and stay in these groups of 10 people that remain at least six feet away from the other group. So, you know, just <laughs> the guidance that DeWine gave, he, he said, well, it comes back a lot to just common sense. And he said, you know, you go to a church <laughs> festival, you wear a mask, you're standing in line to get a hot dog or a barbecued chicken or whatever it is. Just keep a little distance. So how do you like that for guidance? I mean, well, really? Do you do you really think the mayors who ride in the open convertibles in the parades are going to wear masks? No one's going to wear a mask. This, this is, I guess the one thing that could happen is before Memorial Day, before July 4th, he could change the rules again because he's changing them by the minute. <laughs> this one, this one threw me. And it was, he didn't say hey, I've got big news today. I am lifting the restrictions. No, on he didn't gathering. say it that way. He just said, we're simplifying things. And it was anything but simple to us. Yeah, we really boggled the mind. When you when you told me at the end of the day, hey, the gist of this is he's list, lifting the mass, the, the mass gathering orders on this, 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 this in ballparks. It was like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> he made rules for the ballparks. Are those gone? It's like, yeah, we don't know. And we called Dan Tierney. And I, I feel bad for him because I don't think he knew either. I don't think anybody <laughs> knew. And they're making it up as they go. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's the latest example of bungling by the administration of Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish? This one potentially costing taxpayers $1.2 million. Layla, if it's This Week in the CLE, we're talking about incompetence <laughs> by Armin Budish. Right, right. So Budish this time is accused of failing for more than a year to seek state reimbursements for maintaining this, the county's public defender's office. The, the possible loss of taxpayers, like you said, could be $1.2 million. So after Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer asked about this, the county submitted the expenses, arguing that it was within the state's fiscal year, which runs from July 1st through June 30th. And so they're hopeful that they will get the full reimbursable amount. But the state public defender's office said there's no guarantee on that and that any expense that predates July 2020 won't even be considered for reimbursement. So the way this works, the county public defender's office submitted requests for reimbursement on payroll costs. So those have all been taken care of. But the county's fiscal office was responsible for submitting requests for other indirect costs that are shared by other offices. So that's like the IT services and human resources and things like that. So according to the state, they stopped doing that pretty much at the beginning of 2020. And this came to light last week when this year-end budget report from 2020 was finally made public. 
and it showed $1.2 million in lost revenue because of a failure to report expenses. It's in dispute whether the county has been submitting those expenses for reimbursement at all this year. And But here's the thing. This wasn't the first time the county has been in hot water over these reimbursements. In 2019, the state public defender's office identified excessive, excessive billing for office space. So like the opposite problem, the county public defender's office was occupying, you know, certain offices in this building. And the suspicion was that the county was trying to subsidize part of the overhead for its other county department offices in that same building by overbilling to the state public defender's office. And the county never could prove that that wasn't the case. So here's what I want to know. Whose head rolled after this? I, I feel like, you know, in 2019 and right now, how is this just chalked up to lost revenue? And now that they've identified the problem, how is it that they're just still failing to submit the dang reports? I don't well, understand. The Chris, if, I, if I'm a couple weeks late with my expense reports around here, I never hear the end of it from you guys. <laughs> no, you don't. I, what, what's, what's surprising on this? I guess it's not surprising. We start asking questions about this. Courtney Astolfi picked up on it in a budget hearing. Somebody just talked about the deficit they had in this line item. It was big. So she'd been working on this for a couple of days and you get the runaround. But it, it sounds like it was after hours. We're very close to the end of the day on Good Friday. They rush and submit all their reports to try yeah. and neutralize her reporting like that's somehow going to make the bungling. OK, oh, oh, right. oh, you caught us. We'll fix it before you report your story. It's just silly. Right, right. Anyway. I hate when 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 that's the the response of, of public officials is just trying to instead of getting out in front of something the way they should. It's just trying to, you know, backpedal and, you know, slip it under the radar so that the reporter doesn't doesn't notice. It's the worst. <laughs> and they had they had a potential explanation. They could have said, you know what, when we found out that we were overbilling the state for things that shouldn't fit, we decided to do a review of our accounting system. And during that review, we stopped submitting the reports, which was a big mistake. But we didn't want to continue overbilling the state. So it was because of our carefulness that we did this and we're going to try and get as much of this money back. It was really dumb. Thank you for catching it. Right. That would right. that would go a lot further than the, oh, we're going to be fine and sneaking it right. in on Good Friday. Right, right. But it's amazing to me These how often. lessons they never learn. Never. Never, <laughs> never, ever, ever. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Last week, it was college students. This week, it is high school students. Why is Ohio Governor Mike DeWine racing to get young people vaccinated before summer? Leila Tassi, what's he up to here? Well, clearly he's trying to catch kids before they disperse into the world and on their summer breaks and start working summer jobs amid the public or go on family trips or travel and potentially contract and spread the disease. He, he, he's encouraging health departments and vaccine providers to reach out to schools to make the shots available to 16 and 17 year olds who, of course, would need parental permission to get the shot. They can only get the two-dose Pfizer vaccine because that's the only one approved for use in, in such young people. Not the Johnson & Johnson single-dose shot that they're offering the college students soon on their campuses. At the end of March, Pfizer announced the results of trials that showed that the vaccine should be effective for kids as young as 12. And, you know, the 14 to 17-year-old age group make, make up the, the highest percentage of cases among kids. 
you know, as I said last week, when, when DeWine announced the plan to inoculate college kids, I just think this is a brilliant idea. It, it's one of the few times I think we've actually seen him exercise some real forethought in his vaccine deployment strategy and try to get out ahead of, you know, all the kids kind of flooding out into the world and uh, make sure that they're protected and, and doing their part to protect the rest of us. It's a really, really good development in, in this whole thing. Look, you're a, a mom of younger children who are not eligible for this yet, mm-hmm. but the Pfizer folks are, are saying they're going to be able to show that it works for, I think, kids as young as six or seven. This is different than you deciding for yourself. What do you think parents would say about a 10 or 11-year-old being eligible for the vaccine? Do you think that they would they would get their kids vaccinated? Oh, that's a really great question. Personally, I would, but I know others who themselves have gotten the vaccine and probably would say no, or they'd fall into that category of like, well, you know, kids seem to be in the lowest risk category and I think that they might be okay. Or maybe they'll think, you know, we'll wait to see how the vaccine plays out in the broader scope of things. I don't know. I think I think you'd find more pushback about people vaccinating their children than vaccinating themselves. It's, it'll be interesting. Yeah. Good question. Well, it's, it's a new technology, you know, that programs your RNA to do something that, that has had some people nervous because usually you want to see 20, 30 years of experience with a new medical technology before you know it's not going to have you grown a third ear. But we also have the problem of herd immunity, that this, this virus will keep mutating the more people that get it. Right. And while kids don't get hugely sick with it most of the time, they still can carry it. And right. so there's there's the sense of I want to protect my kids from from this new technology. I'm I'm not sure I'm willing to risk myself, but not my children. But on the other hand, there's what you owe to your community to keep people right. from I th- getting sick. I think I think that that phase will have to, they'll have to design a public outreach campaign designed just around that message of why it's important to vaccinate children as the potential spreaders of the disease, you know, in a, in, in that way. I think, I think it's going to have to be very targeted messaging at that point. Well, we need that targeted messaging for Republican men because half ah, of them aren't getting right. the vaccine either. <laughs> exactly. I mean, we have we have other more vulnerable populations that that are just refusing to get this, and it's a big unknown whether we can get to true herd immunity if a large part of the population doesn't do it. I I think I read this morning twenty three percent of the American population is fully fully uh, vaccinated as of now. I think that's right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Who's the latest candidate officially to be in the Republican primary for the U.S. Senate? Jane Cahoon, we have somebody new. Yes, somebody new, but somebody not surprising. Westlake car dealer and tech entrepreneur Bernie Marino throws his hat into the ring this morning. He announced that he is running for Rob Portman's Senate seat when Rob Portman retires next year. And as I said, it, it's it's not surprising. And would it also surprise you at all to know that he mentioned Donald Trump in his announcement, Chris? Well, <laughs> no, but that, that's what makes this interesting. So far, every candidate that we've talked about is trying to out Trump the others. And they all, you know, Politico reported that story we talked about last week where four of them, including 
Bernie Moreno went right. and played the apprentice before him where he pitted him against each other and made him dance like clowns to get his approval. I, I keep wondering if we're going to see a candidate that goes the other way that says, you know what? I well, don't care about Donald Trump's approval. I'm going to go back to our party's founding principles. We got to get away from this nonsense that almost destroyed our democracy. But Bernie Moreno is not in that light. Uh, no, he said that he is entering the race to stop the socialist agenda and protect Donald Trump's gains and to protect the American dream. So he's clearly putting Trump front and center. He also stressed that he he came to the United States as a child with his mother and siblings to flee socialism in Colombia. And he believes, you know, that same socialist ideology is rising in the United States and he wants to to fight back against it. He compared Bernie Sanders and AOC to like radicals like Fidel Castro. And, you know, he said, we just need to protect the country from the socialist left and, you know, build on our the concept of freedom. And he said it's personal for him. He wants to crack down on China. And as I said, protect Trump's uh, what he sees as Trump's policy victories. Look, he's got a great backstory. I mean, his car dealerships were very successful, but he was pushed to the brink by a lawsuit by a former employer that left him scraping and he he barely made it. And then he built a very, very big business empire and made a lot of money. So, you know, he's he's got an interesting business backstory. He's got the money to spend on his own campaign. But to, to peddle the socialism thing, it's just ridiculous. I mean, it's just there's nothing about this country that is going socialist. And to throw out those words without understanding their true meaning, it's silly. He's not as, clearly not nearly as silly as Josh Mandel with his wild antics online, although you know, Bernie Moreno did post some stuff early in the pandemic that brought him a great deal of derision and questions about his then board membership on the Metro Health Board because of it. He stayed on the board after apologizing for some of the things he said, but it was... But uh, didn't he eventually step down? Didn't he just Yeah, step he down did. Recently? He just stepped down because he was in a run for, for the Senate, but he's been a bit of a lightning rod because he has been rash on social media sometimes yeah. and brings a he lot used of some of the other buzzwords too like he talked about cancel cultures attempts to silence conservatives you know that's right out of the the trump playbook too so you know we'll we'll have to see i mean yeah. i think he sort of sees himself as in the mold of donald trump the you know i want to jump in rich guy businessman <laughs> you know no he's never run for office before anyway layla wants layla to get in. <laughs> all of these trumpy politicians josh mandel and the rest do they remember trump lost the election just a few months ago i don't understand what is the strategy in aligning so closely with the guy who just lost swing oh, voters. Josh Mandel would tell you that he didn't lose. It was oh, stolen. good grief. The swing <laughs> voters have spoken. I mean, somewhere in their mind, they know the truth about the election. I mean, they, they understand that that, you know, all of the stop the steal garbage is is just false. They know that in their minds. I just don't understand why why you're going to go all in on the dude on the dude who just 
got canned by voters. It's just but this is I've just never about seen that. Never, that's never happened before. <laughs> yeah, but they want to win the primary. This is this isn't about the general. They want to win over the primary voters who so are. Do you think they will abandon that strategy once they get through the primary? Well, I I think any of these candidates, if they were to run up against Amy Acton, who is who could be running on the Democratic side. We'll have a hard time because the, I don't think people want to go back to the ridiculous Trump claims. I mean, j- just hearing the catchwords that that Bernie Moreno used, it's sad because that's not where the country is. I mean, you get the feeling that the countries were relieved that we're out of that. What's going to be fascinating? I'm on I'm on the board of the Ohio Debate Commission, and we're talking about having the primary debates for the Senate races. Can you imagine a debate? With Josh Mandel, Bernie Moreno, James Timken, and several of the others who are in. Can you imagine how out of control that could be with them oh trying God. to trump each other? I mean, it'll uh, be high theater. People will be watching. But it's it's also kind of a, a disgrace if that's what they're trying to do. Look, I still don't understand why they're all so worried about getting the approval of one person Instead of the voters of all right, right. the person who just resoundingly lost an election and a loser. To overthrow the <laughs> democracy by sparking an insurrection that killed people at the U.S. Capitol. That's who's approval. Who's advising these people? I, I uh, man, we'll so see. Wrong. <laughs> You're listening to this week in the CLE. How is the city of Cleveland going to spend nearly a million dollars to make firehouses more welcoming to female firefighters? Leila Tassi, I guess they never figured they had to do this because they've been a bastion of maleness. They don't have that many female fighters, which I'm kind of surprised has not resulted in a lawsuit. But what are they doing here? So city council approved $830,000 to remodel the fire stations to accommodate women among the ranks. The upgrades would provide for separate sleeping quarters, bathroom facilities, and showers, and should be done by 2025. And it should be noted that, you know, as you were saying, the bastion of maleness (laughs) set out of 700 firefighters who work for the city of Cleveland right now, only one is a woman. I'm not sure that they have ever been more than, that there have ever been more than three women at one time working for the fire department. They're going to start with the first batch of six fire stations. Some will require more work than others, obviously involving like plumbing and, you know, others will just have signage or doors to add and things like that. But interestingly, at the council table, at least one city councilman questioned whether this was necessary right now. He said, you know, maybe the money would be better used to meet other immediate needs, such as new roofing things like that, rather than accommodating people the city hasn't even hired yet. Well, first of all, (laughs) those other capital improvements are already being addressed in other parts of the budget. But more importantly, you're probably never going to hire more women if you can't accommodate them. The city is trying to recruit more women and minorities on its safety forces. To succeed at that, you have to at least tell them you value them enough to provide a private toilet and shower facility because firefighters work long shifts and they stay overnight at the firehouse. I'm sorry, man. Sharing a bathroom with a bunch of dudes is an absolute deal breaker for me. <laughs> all right, no all right, no but, lifelong dream of becoming a firefighter could ever overcome that. So they but, need to address that before their recruiting efforts ramp up. <laughs> but see, you're putting almost an altruistic spin on this. Like they're trying to be forward thinking. 
I suspect that their legal team said, you know, we're really vulnerable to a lawsuit here because we don't have any women. So women could sue and use that evidence of discrimination and further evidence would be, and they don't even have facilities for women in the firehouses. Mm, that's a good I point. This is much more of a defense mechanism against what surely would be a coming sexual discrimination lawsuit. Either way, it's it's about time they do it. I'm astounded that there's one female firefighter in the whole city. I wonder what the ratio is on fire departments in other cities. It, it's right. something worth looking at. <laughs> I'd love I'm to sure. do a profile on that woman. I think that would be a cool story. Yeah, that would be good. And I think Bob huh. Hicks is probably twitching right now because he knows a story assignment is coming. Examine <laughs> how this compares <laughs> yeah, to right. elsewhere. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What are voting rights advocates asking Ohio Governor Mike DeWine to do to put gerrymandering behind us, even though the U.S. Census Bureau has thrown up some big hurdles? Jane Cahoon, what's going on? Yeah, these advocates who are with Common Cause Ohio and the League of Women Voters, they think that Ohio officials should start getting the ball rolling now instead of waiting for these delayed census results. They're going to be delayed because of the pandemic. They sent a letter to DeWine and to state legislative leaders and other state officials involved in what's supposed to be a new and reformed redistricting process this time around, you know, saying that they can start doing work now, like picking which state lawmakers are going to be on the commission that's that's going to approve the maps and setting up a website so that the public can learn more about it. But one thing they don't want them to do is to use like alternative data to to figure it out because they think that could be flawed. There There is, you know, some information that comes out through the Census Bureau's American Community Survey, but that's just based on estimates. And, you know, they really need detailed population and demographic information. And then another possibility here, according to these advocates, is delaying the 2022 primary until June instead of May, just to give them more time for public input and drying the maps. So that that could be a possibility as well. But if you don't do it the right way, the prescribed way by the letter, don't you set yourself up for no end of lawsuits? I mean, I, get- I think that's what they're saying. I mean, I think they did, they don't want to use the alternative data, which a judge who heard Dave Yost's case on this, where he was seeking to force the census to release the data on time, you know, said, oh, they could use the alternative data. But these advocates, no, they do not want that. The The census is supposed to provide it by the end of September. And they, they would rather like delay the primary just to give enough time to, to use the right data. Right. The voters prescribe this. It's in the Constitution. You just can't right. say, well, the pandemic affected it. So judges will let us off the hook. The judges aren't going to let you off the hook. It's in the Constitution. You can't alter that. So well, but they do want some flexibility, I think, on those deadlines, which are in September to to get certain things done. I think these advocates have pretty much said, you know, we're not going to sue to force adherence to, to those deadlines. Pushing the primary would be interesting because mm-hmm. we have some very seriously contested primaries we're expecting in the Senate race and in the governor's race. So we'll have to see. OK, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast. We're thinking of having Seth Richardson, our political expert, on tomorrow to talk about the state of some of the races. So come on and hear it.